Hello, Mom. Hi, Shayna. Um, welcome to Talking Oaks. This week, I watched a five-hour city council meeting so you didn't have to. <laughs> Do you know what took up the most time? Tell me, please. It was the general plan. Of course. What do you know about the state of our general plan right now? So at the moment, I believe they extended the public comment and survey period. There are three plans that I have looked at and voted for one. The biggest complaint that I hear from residents, which is not new or surprising, is the um, inclusion of buildings potentially over four stories tall for housing and the um, idea that some neighborhoods may soon have multifamily housing or at least have the potential Mm -hmm. for multifamily housing adjacent to them because people um, want... You know, they're a single family home with with the backyard in a, you know, to, to remain exactly the same and everything around it to mm-hmm. remain exactly the same. So that's what I keep hearing. There's a lot of complaint about the, the plot that I believe um, uh, is potentially even like wetland um, between uh, between the freeway and, um, and Newbury Park. Um, zoning for like a, a villagey um, space. Right. I know there was also one of the proposals was um, for the area off of the right off the 101 on by the Westlake Promenade to allow that for up to seven stories. Right. The by the Baxter Building. I, I believe. Yeah. That's a yeah 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 yeah. So they've given us more time to talk it over as a city and to help us figure it out. This week, they had a study session in the city council meeting. Um, And I was pretty excited for this just because, I don't know, I just graduated college and I kind of miss having study sessions on PowerPoint. (laughs) So we have a uh, city planner named Matt Ramey of Ramey and Associates. Um, In this study session, it was a really big topic. He wanted to cover health equity and environmental justice. Good. And... um, He started by giving a brief history of city planning and public zoning, uh, which were created to address public health problems like pollution. So these issues have always gone hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So the goal, his goal is to identify disadvantaged communities so that they can be addressed in the city's new general plan. And he explained that according to his findings, good news, currently Thousand Oaks is a very healthy city. Woo. We have a very high income uh, and having more money is apparently very good for your health. And we have a lot of open public spaces and low crime. So there are trees and parks and green things and and our schools are good. So we we have have, grocery stores. We have grocery stores. We don't have any food deserts. We have grocery stores and we're really close to agro. We have farmer's market and we have, you know, um, so there's not a lot of the deprivation that contributes to poor public health, public mental health, you know, crime, those kinds of things we so far don't have. But that being said, that means that the health problems we do have are concentrated in our disadvantaged communities. And so he, in this presentation, went about how um, they identify and how they define disadvantaged communities, one of which uh, has to do with income. So he showed a graph of income in Thousand Oaks and showed that the median median household income in TO is about 100000 per year. And that means if you're spending about a third of your income on housing, that comes out to about 2700 per month, which according to a quick Google search is about average for Thousand Oaks. And also when I went on Zillow, you know, there's a lot of, well, there's, you can find apartments and condos for rent for about that much or less. But how many bedrooms do they have? 
that's yeah mostly it's one bedroom one bath you can't really find a lot of you can't find any houses for that much our house that we just moved out of in the disadvantaged community is going for 3700 a month yeah which you said is more than our current mortgage yes. so renting is um kind of crazy in this town yes and he showed on this chart that if the median income is $100,000 that means that Half of the incomes are below $100,000. Yeah, so that means that all fast food workers, all retail workers, all janitors, every teacher, every nurse, every firefighter, paralegals, and even some engineers in this town are considered low income because our housing is that expensive. That's right. So I can see how this would be a problem. I mean, when we say affordable housing, people imagine that we want to build, you know, the old projects of the early or some weird thing, or they think about other people that they don't think are deserving, which is a whole other problem. But um, to you know, as you've just pointed out, in Thousand Oaks, a lot of you, you know, people who were raised here, who who went to school, who have you know good marketable, you know, jobs who, you know, um, can't afford to get in here and raise a family. And that does a lot of things. It, it hurts. Uh, well, obviously it hurts our school district because, you know, the number of young families has declined. Um, it also means more pollution because people have to drive in and out of this town to work. And we do have very good jobs here. Um, and it means that, um, you know, we say $100,000 sounds like a lot of money, but if you're a, let's say you're a single mom and you're lucky enough to have a job that pays you $100,000 a year or a little bit more, how are you going to get an apartment big enough to support your family and take care of them and um, uh, have all the things that you need in this town on that salary? Yeah, a lot, of, mean, a lot of that came up in um, public comments, which is is the next thing I wanted to get to, to kind of jump ahead a little bit. But I mean, is, in his presentation, he talked about going into the community to get feedback. And a lot of people brought up what positive improvements they wanted from the city. But also a lot of those same concerns were brought up in public comments that night. And so just to sort of summarize a few of them, there were multiple public comments, like one after the other, saying that we needed more affordable housing. One mother said that she was concerned for her son who just graduated from CSU Channel Islands and can't afford to live in Thousand Oaks. And I thought you could relate to that. <laughs> yeah. Wait, was I there? <laughs> there were calls for an inclusionary housing ordinance. One commenter cited studies from CLU that since 2007, Ventura County's economy has shrunk as people have had to move away. Yep. Which, yeah, as you talked about, affecting our schools. There were also heartbreaking personal stories being shared by families who have never been able to live without roommates. One mother said how desperately she just wanted to live without strangers. But for her, it's impossible because her husband can only make minimum wage and she has to stay home to raise her three kids because she doesn't want to pay for a sitter. Well, that's another thing that people forget. Being poor or not even, let's not even say poor, let's say living below the median income costs a lot of freaking money. If you can't afford to put your kids in reasonable care, After you can't care, yeah. be at work. You know, in the 70s, 
they did. But, you know, that had its own problems. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that comes with not having enough money that actually costs more money yeah. than having money, you yeah. know? So, yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> it's not just teenagers that earn minimum wage. In fact, it's actually really hard to get a job if you're a teenager because places just don't want to hire teenagers I anymore. I mean, when... I when, couldn't get a job till I turned 18. No, I remember. I mean, when I was, you know, 15, I could get a minimum wage job. But when you were out looking as a, you know, bright, promising, you know, excited high school student, everyone was like, yeah, no. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So... There were other stories from other families um, renting out one room of an apartment with other families or individuals renting out one section of a living room to sleep in. And that's what happens when you try to use zoning to keep people out because you think you're going to preserve the character of your city or whatever. Yeah. Thousand Oaks is a really nice place. People want to live here. And so if they really want to, they're going to find a way. And so well, if we don't... Also, have... they work here. Let's exactly. say again, we have some jobs here. You know, if, I mean, people can, if people see the promise of having a job, a school to send their kids to and a safe neighborhood, do you think they're not going to find, you know, is it really fair to force them to live in, in what Betsy has called the, the, you know, gray market affordable housing with just, you know, just 20 people shoved into a house or whatever. I mean, it's, it's nonsense. And these people are part of your community. Whether you want to see them or not, whether you want to know it or not, these people are part of our community. So this is, you can see how this is such a big, complicated issue that touches a lot of things. And you can see why it took up so much of the time. Mm -hmm. So during the study session, city planner Ramey included quotes um, of comments of people made in Thousand Oaks that represent an exclusionary mindset like we've been talking about. And these arguments are made in every city, mm-hmm. uh, but they include things like renters and college students' opinions shouldn't carry as much weight as the taxpaying property owners, or traffic and crime and property value will all get worse if we do this. And it reminds me of a recent letter to the editor in the TO Acorn from like a week or two ago, where the writer said that building more units in Thousand Oaks would just bring down our housing prices. And well, congratulations, Acorn reader. Teachers, nurses, and firefighters can barely afford to live in Thousand Oaks. Yeah. So this is what prompted council member Ed Jones to ask a question. He said, um, you use the phrase exclusionary mindset, which bothered me. What were you referring to by that? And so city planner (laughs) Ramey had to clarify that he meant comments uh, saying that low-income households should live in other communities and not in Thousand Oaks. And council member Jones was confused by this, saying, well, I don't know where that idea came from. So he started by saying that, you know, when he moved here, there was only 18,000 people here. Maybe there was 1,800. He's kind of old. And he moved here because housing was affordable, because he couldn't afford to live in the same house in Glendale where he was living, which sounds like the same problem people are facing. Sounds like the same problem people like me are facing right now. And I really, it sounded like he was very sincere about this. Um, but it, eventually he asked council, uh, eventually he asked city planner Ramey to define institutional and structural racism. Now, to understand how racism and the environment and housing and health are all connected and why a city planner is being asked to define structural racism during a city council meeting, I think it's important briefly to understand the racial wealth gap in America. So here are some causes of the racial wealth gap in America today. 
Farm workers and domestic workers, who were often minorities, were excluded from the Social Security Act in 1935. Minorities often had tip-based jobs, which were excluded from the minimum wage protections and still are to this day. The Department of Veterans Affairs denied benefits to people of color. I need to inject one point that I think yeah. that you might you you might get to, but I want to make these were just yeah some things that came up really quickly in the post-war boom in the post-World War II boom when veterans came back went to school on the GI Bill bought their houses on the GI Bill little Levittown suburbias started popping up around the United States people of color were specifically excluded from taking advantage of these benefits and living in these neighborhoods and that means that every white family got to begin to build generational wealth through home ownership that we denied people of color so we as a group, were able to rise while we refused to let others do that. That is still reflected in the way, in the racial wealth gap today. Today. And that's all about exclusionary housing. Exactly. And that's why in 2016, the median white family's wealth was $170,000 and the median black family's wealth was $17,000. Is that correct? Yeah. That's insane. I knew it was bad, but that's really insane. Exactly. So <sighs> council members Jones and then uh, McNamee kept bringing up that they've never heard anyone in this town say anything racist or make oh. racist decisions, that yeah. we just wanted to make a better town with more valuable property. But when you can see that income and race are so connected, just saying that you want more valuable property inherently excludes people of other well, let me races. tell you you know a while back when a different company that i was working for back around around the year 2000 i think one of the women that i worked with who um she and her when her family was young um when she, they had a young son and and she was newly married uh moved down here from the bay area and what she told me that she told their realtor was we want to live in uh, an economically, uh, um, what was the word she used? She did not want economic diversity. So you understand that's a way of saying, I don't want diversity, right? Right. But it's, it's not a, racist. It's not racist. I just want everyone to have the same things. Right. Because that sounds nice. That sounds nice to say you just want to live in a neighborhood where only rich people live. Who doesn't <laughs> want that? <laughs> so, yeah. No, it's a way of saying... Um, I, I want everyone to look just like me. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And, um, but, but Jones and McNamee still seemed confused by this whole idea and kept asking the city planner for clarification. And actually, eventually, Mayor Pro Temp um, Angler, um, I thought, had a very useful comment where he said, um, look, no one chooses to punish red Corvette owners more than other car drivers. But when I drive my red Corvette around town, cops just end up noticing it more than other cars. So sometimes, even when no one's trying to be racist, sometimes unequal things just happen. And we need to be able to talk about that and, and address that. we need to that. talk about the structures that keep that all in place. And yeah. whether Ed or Kevin McNamee feel like they're racist, which, spoiler alert, absolutely everyone has racial bias and we all need to get over ourselves. It's part of being a human. Yeah. Um, uh, whether or not they want to believe that they or any of their neighbors are racist, um, 
we we have to be honest about the fact, you know, and this hurts, right? Because I'm saying that me, who, um, you know, has, you know, I'm saying that I benefit no matter what I've been through in my life, no matter how I was raised, no matter anything, I benefit just from the color of my skin. And what I'm saying then is that that's, that my, you know, acknowledging your own privilege is, is, it hurts, right? And nobody wants to do it. Everybody wants to believe, no, 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 no. I am who I am because I work hard at being who I am. Well, okay. There are a lot of other things that helped you along is something that people don't like to hear, you know? So, yeah. So something that council member, um, McNamee and, um, Jones kept trying to say is that, uh, it's not racist. It's just the market. It's, you know, the market is racist. (laughs) Why, why is that? Why is that a defense? I, I wanted to ask you as someone in the housing industry, because they said things like, well, you know, land is just getting more and more expensive. So of course they're trying to make houses more and more expensive with more and more amenities. And I just, I don't know. It's, it seemed interesting to say, well, land is getting more and more expensive without maybe wondering if our zoning is the reason that it's getting more yeah, expensive. It's not, okay. So, all right. As someone who works in the building industry, yes, land is crazy expensive. Yes. When we go to build anything, whether we're talking about a McMansion or a, an apartment building, um, cities rely on uh, builders for a lot of funds, you know, um, uh, with school fees and park fees and whatever the city really needs. And, and also in California, I'm going to say this, but then I'm going to tell you that it's a good thing. Our building codes are really high and really strict, and it costs a lot more to just materials, um, just to materials to build here than it does in Texas. Right. However, this is a good thing, and um, it's kind of worth it. Um, I am sure, and I could ask my boss, you know, I'm sure there are ways in which builders would like to see um, costs come down. In, Cal- in fact, I know there are costs come down in California, mm-hmm. but you cannot blame the lack of availability on how expensive the land is. And I will tell you that I know that because I know that the company I work for, which is a for-profit company, is able to build truly affordable housing from everyone from, you know, working young teachers to people who are coming off the streets. So if we're able to do that in California in some very expensive zip codes, um, and we're able to actually do it at a profit with really nice amenities and pretty counters and swimming pools, then, you know, the money is not what's keeping it from being built. Mm-hmm. Failures of imagination all around everybody. <laughs> so I, I think uh, writing to people like Ed, I'm not going to bother writing to Kevin McNamee because I think he's a moron, but, um, but Ed is, to your point, I believe, sincere. Um, Ed uh, has a good name in this town because he's been around and involved for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also an old white guy who um, it's going to be hard for him to see the things that we would like him to be able to see. So, um, you know, I, I would say writing letters is a good thing. Um, encourage Bob Engler, who, you know, the red Corvette analogy may sound pretty, um, 
Uh, I loved so, it. It was so like dorky, it, like a dad works, analogy, yeah. but it worked pretty well. It works pretty well. I, yeah. So, you know, I think that um, always city council elections matter. People don't remember that enough. And um, that writing letters to the council members, you know, the, the great thing about living in a town like ours is that we actually can reach out and talk to the people who are representing us. You know, not that we can also, we have, we have great representation of it on the state and in Congress too, but, you know, um, you can, once restaurants are open again, run into one of them at coffee, you know? Um, so, uh, if you care about these things, once you've educated yourself and gotten some, gotten proximate to the issue, um, you can actually ring them up and say, can we talk or just write a letter? And that's a great thing, you know? Yeah. It's a really beautiful thing. I believe Ed is sincere. I think he's, you know, got the ignorance of an old white man, but I don't think he's a bad person. And I think that it's worth talking to him. So. I, yeah, I agree. I, I think you can, maybe you shouldn't be judging people's character by just the sound of their voice. But in in the meeting, he genuinely, when he sounded the way he said, I've never heard anyone in this town say anything racist. Like he sounded yeah. almost sincerely, he said, I don't want to be defensive, but he almost sounded, you know, a little wounded by this as yeah. an accusation. And sure. there was a time in my life where I felt the same thing where, you know, I just grew up in this town and thought, oh, it's, it's lovely here. There's trees everywhere and everything's I've all shiny I've never heard anybody pretty. yell racial slurs. Yeah. To this yeah. day, I've yeah. never heard anybody <laughs> yell racial slurs in Thousand Oaks. I've yeah. never heard anyone on the council say we don't want minorities in this town. Right. But I don't know, know exactly when it happened, but eventually you start seeing things where you notice that there are, there are consequences, there, there are inequalities, even and, if we don't consciously. And let consciously... me tell you something, as someone who's closer to Ed's age than you are, um, although still younger, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I grew up in this town too, and I um, grew up believing that there was no racism where I lived, Right. Um, because that was all in the South and I never heard anybody saying bad things. And, you know, I knew, uh, I grew up with two, uh, black boys and, uh, a few people, you know, few Latinx people. And so I just thought everybody mixed together very happily. Right. I blissful ignorance of any issues. When I was a grown ass woman in my forties, I met women who were my age, who grew up in this town, who were Jewish, who told me about the slurs that were hurled at them. So I assumed that we grew up in this beautiful place. But again, it's white privilege. I didn't have to hear what they were hearing. There was no reason for me to hear what they were hearing. So there's always going to be bias and there's always going to be, um, in, in the person to person interactions around, you know, there will always be bias and there will always be, uh, discrimination. Again, like I said, we all have bias, whether we want to be, whether we want to look at it or not, but I think it's our job to question ourselves, you know, on a daily basis. Um, there will always be, you know, issues between us personally. But here's the thing. We have government so that we can design systems that are fair so that our little personal issues don't, don't matter in the broader picture, right. right? It's up to us to make sure that our systems are fair. That's the way that it, we make it good, you know? So, yeah. 
<clears throat> so I'm glad that Thousand Oaks is having this conversation. I'm glad that mm-hmm. the mayor uh, seems to be very supportive uh, and inclusive throughout all of this. And I'm glad that the city planner from a private firm that we contracted seems to be taking this very seriously and was able to define structural and institutional racism in the middle of a city council meeting. Good. It was pretty impressive. Um, For anyone listening, the difference is institutional racism refers to when one institution uh, treats people unequally, like redlining people in uh, minority neighborhoods. Structural racism is when multiple institutions compound on a group like redlining people in minority neighborhoods and then over-policing those neighborhoods and underfunding those schools and putting more pollution in those neighborhoods. And so that's how you see that people born in redline districts to this day live shorter lives and earn less money than people born in my neighborhood. And have some... There is vanishingly fewer paths to economic advancement in this country. The whole... Um, you can be anything you want in America. You can go anywhere you want. It, it really has diminished so much in the last 30 years. Um, but for people who live in these redlined, uh, overpoliced, underfunded communities, it's a lot harder just to get out, just to get anywhere in the world outside of your neighborhood is so much harder, you know? And all of this is to say... I really like the privileges that I got growing up. I liked the schools that I went to. I liked the beautiful open spaces and parks that are all around me. And I just think more people deserve that. I don't want to, I don't think that just because I got this, I need to guard it and keep other people away from it. I want to share it. So if anyone else um, thinks this way, please contact anyone on the city council. (laughs) And um, to wrap up, I just wanted to bring up some other public comments um, because there were a few themes. There were a lot of public comments and a lot of them on similar topics. Uh, Multiple people brought up disability and accessibility in this city. Mm. Um, Several parents who are really concerned for what's going to happen as their children grow up. Mm -hmm. Um, Parents bringing up that disabled people are more likely to live in poverty and 70% of disabled adults live with parents uh, and Uh, She was one of several people who spoke about just wanting the city to make more of their services more accessible to disabled people, making the public transit more accessible to people. Um, There was a freshman at Moorpark College who talked about having to ride his bike to and from school every day and it taking him two hours and how now he relies on the dial-a-ride service because he can't ride his bike and how that's just not efficient for him. And I... I I had to do the same thing in high school because I took the school bus for a bit because you and dad worked and then the school canceled their bus service. So I would have had, this is how I remember it. I would have had to take the public bus, which would have taken way longer. I think it was like two hours or something crazy. Yeah. yeah. yeah and yeah. so instead I just rode my bike home, which is a pain in the ass. Which, uh, you know, by the way, uh, uh, I do not feel sorry for you for having to ride your bike to and from school. Your uncle Jesse, who grew up in Lake Sherwood, had to ride his bike to Newbury Park High School. So get over no, your damn I mean, song. But fine. But here's the, <laughs> fine. But here's the thing that I hated about it was there's no safe way for you to get home on your bike. I worried exactly. every day that you were going to get mowed down by a car. So, I had to ride my bike on the street in Teal Boulevard because they um they painted 
uh, those little the little marks on the road to let you know it's a shareable road where <laughs> bikes and cars are supposed to drive in the same space and not its own bike lane. But no one actually wants to share the road with a cyclist going half their speed. So yeah, no. <laughs> and that was that was you entered high school. I think the year after that teacher was mowed down on Hillcrest. Not about that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it. You know, I, I, I. That's the thing. I, I wasn't concerned about you having to ride your bike. I was concerned about you having to ride your bike on streets that were not built for you to be riding your bike and there was no safe way for you to do it. And it, it, it drove me crazy. Yeah. So I fully support all the people saying that we need to make transportation more accessible in this city. Um, also this, uh, one mother brought up that, um, well, I mean, really thanks to her, I found out that our city only has um, one organization on the charter that has anything to do with disability rights, the Disability Access Appeals and Advisory Board, or DAB, and they have not met since 2018. But oh here's the twist. It turns out that the only city body that deals with disability is, in fact, created for the purpose of finding exemptions for disability codes, which is shocking. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Is oh wow! Yeah. So it's code enforcement. That that oh my yeah. Goodness. Finding exemptions like oh you don't have to put a ramp there. Don't worry. Well, I'd like to point out that the school district has just done so much better than this. The school district has all you know has um, district access committees for 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 you know geared toward inclusion and 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 are working really hard and that meet all the time and that have the superintendent's ear. Hmm. Um, so school district has done just phenomenally well on this, but it sounds like the city's being a little bit of a dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah. For real. So yeah. Um, this mother founded an organization uh, for her daughter with Down syndrome uh, called We Belong 805. And she, she said she is happy to share their proposal for a new disability advisory board. And oh, I wow. fully support her. Absolutely. Wow, yeah. that's incredible. I, yeah. I had no idea. It's really I I'm I'm so glad that people make so many public comments on these meetings. I love watching it and I learn so much from my fellow citizens. And people in Thousand Oaks are so willing to step up and uh, support each other when, you know, they don't find what they need from the city. Yeah. And um Along those lines, uh, I really want to thank uh, everybody in the organization Adelante. There were several people speaking about it during the meeting. Um, and Lillian Theron Mendoza from Adelante, um, which is a local charity that provides food to people in Thousand Oaks, um, spoke about the need for building neighborhoods where people of all incomes, backgrounds, and abilities can live together. She wants to allow uh, families to afford to live in one apartment without sharing. Uh, like she said, uh, like we were talking about, she said these are the people who cook our food and make our coffee. I mean, these people live in our communities and they deserve dignified places to live. Um, she said when she first moved to this town, she couldn't afford insurance because she was spending all of their money on rent and food for her family. So they had to go to Mexico for healthcare when they needed it because it was the only way they could afford insurance. And no parent should ever have to go through that. People told her about the Westminster Free Clinic, but she was afraid that if she went there, uh, it would threaten her immigration status. She was afraid of becoming a public charge. Mm. Um, and there, she says that she wasn't well enough informed to know that she could use the clinic without any consequences. And the mayor wanted to remind everybody that you can go to the Westminster Free Clinic. They provide free health care for anybody. No questions asked about immigration status. But all of this underscores why the city needs to do a better job of informing all of its residents of the services they provide, making them more accessible, making them uh, accessible to people in other languages. Yeah. Now I'm going to look at the city website again with a different eye because I hadn't really thought about that. 
people also talked about, you said we don't have food deserts in Thousand Oaks. We have a lot of great grocery stores, but a lot of people talked about not going to the grocery stores because no one there spoke Spanish. So they just rely on their neighborhood convenience stores. Oh, yeah. So I'm really thankful for Adelante. I'm really thankful for the translator that uh, translated public comments for the meeting mm. because without which, how would we have heard any of these stories? Yeah. And um, I just wanted to ask you if you wanted to take a moment to talk about what you've been doing volunteering for Adelante and how easy it is for anyone to get involved. Well, it's wonderful. Um, and so Adelante, so I, I volunteer at a very small part of what they do, which is on Saturday mornings, I go um, and I help um, sort um, and uh, pack food. <clears throat> so, you know, they have, um, uh, they have distribution at uh, various points throughout the week and they, <clears throat> you know, they have a lot of different things going on right now. Um, everything is being housed at the Methodist church on Windsor and Jans, which bless them because I think the Westminster free clinic works out of there too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, and so they have a lot of uh, partnerships with others in the community, with Food Share, with um, Tim Hagel's group, Safe Passage. They've through all of these partnerships, they get donations and or grants. Um, they uh, buy food, and so on a given and get donated food. So on a given Saturday morning, we'll get let's say a big drop off from Panera, and we have to sort everything out and repackage it, or you know, busting open 50 pound bags of flour or sugar or masa and then repackaging it into two pound bags for people, which we label. Um, and everything is very, uh, very, 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 very careful, clean and organized. And, um, you know, let's say eight to 10 people on a Saturday morning, will just do this work for a couple of hours. And then it gets distributed through various points later, you know, throughout the week. Um, and there's always need uh, for, you know, everything from, you know, table salt to pancake mix. It, you know, um, we also have, uh, there's also diapers, toilet papers. We got a ton of coffee from Starbucks that we had to bust open and repackage the other day. Um, so, uh, and we just you know, one of the rules basically is everything that we look at, you know, like, let's say from the donations, let's say it's Panera stuff. I mean, we're packaging things, um, uh, good looking, nice food that doesn't look like, you know, seconds or whatever, you know, um, for people to feed their families. And there's, there's a tremendous need. I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen when the kids all come back to Sunday school post COVID, because right now those, (laughs) those rooms are being used for storage, (laughs) but, um, yeah, Adelante does amazing work. And I, I, I'm really, uh, I started volunteering, um, you know, fairly recently, um, because Betsy Connolly is, uh, you know, kind of an idol of mine and whatever she's busy with, I'll help. So I started going and and helping with Adelante. Um, but I, I really want to remain helping even after the kids come back from Sunday school. And, you know, Betsy said, hopefully the need will decline a little bit when people can get back to work. Um, I, you know, whatever they do for the community, I want to keep helping because it's, you know, yeah, it's 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 important work. It's important to support your community. You know, one of the young women that I was volunteering with, I mean, she was maybe your age a couple of weeks ago. Um, 
and she lost her job when the shutdown came and our um, unemployment system in the state of California has been kind of a mess, like computer failures all up and down, you know, so her unemployment checks get delayed. So she's had to rely on food pantry, you know, so, um, so she, you know, she came in, she's like, yeah, you know, kind of my way of giving back. And I, and I, which is very sweet, but it's disturbing to me that this many people need food pantry on an extended basis. It, there should always be something for a, for a, you know, momentary dip, but you know, a lot of people yeah, can't get out of that, that dip. And, uh, yeah. So anyway, it's good work. It's good work. Well, thank you. And uh, A-D-E-L-A-N-T-E, Adelante. Adelante Comunidad Caneo. And you can go on their website and you can uh, you can donate because they do have to buy things. They don't always get donations. All of the, the big pantry staples are purchased. Um, and you can look for opportunities to volunteer. And um, yeah, there you go. It's easy peasy. Nice people. Well, that's all we have time to talk about this week. Thank you so much, Mom, for being here. Thank you to everybody for listening. And please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Talking Oaks. Subscribe and follow us wherever you can download podcasts. And don't forget to talk to your moms. (laughs) 